0: Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be able to call you that. Our gracious, our good, our unchanging Heavenly Father. You who hold eternity in your hands. You who sent your Son, Jesus. You who invaded human history. You who allowed Jesus to walk among us and speak to us and die for us and rise from the dead. Lord, we're amazed that we can experience hope and forgiveness, grace and mercy, love and peace. And so, Heavenly Father, for that person who finds themselves here and they're not experiencing any of those things, hope, grace, Mercy, love, joy, peace. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them tonight about the hope that's in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 8, where we left off, beginning in verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him The daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast the truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered, Read, He did all of this, and surprisingly, it seems that he got away with it. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand 300 days then the sanctuary will be cleansed I love to collect coins I've been collecting them ever since I was 9 years old and I remember the very first time I remember seeing a coin and thinking about it I was at a flea market and there on a tray with a bunch of junk was an Indian head penny And it was dated from 1899. And I thought, this is amazing. Here's this little medallic artifact that goes all the way back in time. And I imagine the person who held it and used it or uh, bought something with it. Many coin collectors seek what's known as a type or an example. Coin collectors, depending on what they collect, will look for a type of a coin that represents a series of coins from times past. It's called a type coin. And in the Bible, there are types and pictures, if you will. In the Bible, there is a hermeneutic that becomes important when you're looking at the Bible and you're reading the Bible. And one of those hermeneutics is the idea that sometimes the Bible will make a statement about something in the near future and the far future. And the Bible speaks of a future man of sin, and he's called the son of perdition. He's also called... The little horn. He's called the Antichrist. He's appeared in the past in type and in shadow. And this morning I pulled out of my coin collection a coin of Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy that we're going to be talking about this evening. And when you look at the coin, the coin was minted mm, a long time ago. Like, we're talking... Over 2,160 years. In other words, this coin was already over 160 years old when Jesus was born, pretty much. And when you look at the coin, you'll see a portrait of a man who is stunning. It's it's really um, unusual for one man to speak of another man as being beautiful. But Antiochus Epiphanes was beautiful. Imagine Brad Pitt meets Clive Owen. He was one of those kinds of human beings when you when you looked at him he was breathtaking in his beauty. And when you look at the portrait and you ask and you answer the question what does a man Look like who becomes a type and a picture of the future Antichrist. What do you see when you see a genocidal maniac, a murderer, and a man who is depraved by every stretch of the imagination? And it's shocking and surprising how incredibly beautiful and normal he looks. I've said this to you and I'm going to repeat it. When a person rejects God in their thinking, their behavior will reflect the fact that they believe that they themselves are God. When you reject God, you don't simply believe in no God, but you'll replace the idea of God for yourself. If you reject God, you will accept yourself as God. If you reject the Spirit, you will accept your body in the present circumstances. And if you reject heaven, you will embrace the earth for all that it has for you. When you reject God, you accept yourself. When you reject the spirit, you embrace the body. When you reject heaven, you embrace the present. Famed Bible teacher Dr. Criswell talked about the types and the shadows of the people who became a type and a picture of the Antichrist. He writes, think of the golden majesty of Babylon, of the mighty ponderous massiveness of Cyrus and Persia. Think of the beauty, elegance, and intellect of the ancient Greek world. Think of the Roman laws and his order and his idea of justice all these glories will be summed up in the majesty of this one eventual Antichrist who will be like Nebuchadnezzar, like Cyrus, like Chalamanser, like Julius Caesar, like Caesar Augustus, like Alexander the Great, like Napoleon Bonaparte, like Frederick the Great, like Charlemagne, all rolled into one. Unquote. In times past, there have been Shadows and suggestions of this future ruler. And none is better than this man, Antiochus. He was called by the Jews Antiochus Epimenes. It means Antiochus the Madman. On this coin, the the first of its kind in all of human history, he Put a lifetime portrait on his coin and on the back of the coins written in the Greek language is Antiochus, Epiphanes. It means in the Greek language, Antiochus, who is the Lord God with you. Antiochus, Theos, Epiphanes. He literally believed that he was God. Now, you've got to understand something. The word Epimenes means madman. And so the Jews would take the pun of the title that he gave to himself. He was born with the given name of Mithridates. He was named after a god. But when he assumes the throne of Seleucid throne, he gives for himself the name Antiochus the fourth. And just like this particular person, a future Antichrist will try to convince the world that he is God with us, but he will be the very presence of evil. He will be the very presence of cruelty. He will be the very presence of wickedness. And so our study of the second vision of Daniel brings us to this incredible and dramatic climax. There's this monstrous glimpse of a man who believes that he would be the ruler of the world and he's a sinful substitute he's a false messiah and when i was preparing this study and particularly in light of our recent election cycle i couldn't help but ask and answer this question what is it inside of our hearts that attracts us to a certain type of leader What is it about us as a culture and as a society and as individuals that attract us to certain types of leaders where we accept people and we reject others? And it's interesting to me. The culture in the society will begin to reflect in itself its own leadership. And if the culture begins to embrace the notion that there really is no God, then they will make themselves God. Make no mistake about it. When a culture abandons the God-given biblical revelation concerning the nature of the Spirit and what it means to be a human being, a being who's created in the image and the likeness of God who is going to survive death and wind up in eternity, guess what? You will begin to live in the here and the now if you reject the Spirit. So what's inside of the heart that rejects God? I'm grateful to David Jeremiah. His outline in this section is excellent. In his book, the handwriting on the wall he begins with Antiochus Epiphanes and then he begins to outline the characteristics of the the Antichrist dramatic in appearance, destined to do evil, dynamic leadership demonic power, destructive in his reign, deceitful in his practice, he deifies himself, he disguises his cruelty with peace promises and then he winds up becoming destroyed without human hands and we'll see all of that in and, 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 and uh, in kiss yes. But we'll also see it in the future Antichrist. Look in verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, the little horn in chapter 8 is different from the little horn in chapter 7. You'll notice it says, and out of one of them. He's speaking of the the, the great horn that comes out of the Greek empire. Remember in verse 21, And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Alexander the Great, the first king, has four generals. Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and uh, Ptolemy. Out of those four will come this little horn. He'll grow exceedingly towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. In Daniel's vision, he sees one of the horns begin to emerge and take the place of prominence and eminence. Now, chapter 8 has three main characters. The notable horn, Alexander the Great, who we've already looked at. And then this little horn, who grows exceedingly. And that's who we're going to look at tonight. I believe that this is this portrait of this person, Antiochus Epiphanes. And then we are going to see the near future when Daniel is writing this. And then we're going to see the far future, a future Antichrist who will mirror the nature and the characteristic of this particular person. Now, one of Alexander's generals named Seleucus, the first Nicator, he ruled syria babylon and much of the middle east and like i said upon the death of alexander the subsequent rule of ptolemy soter takes place in egypt in the south and he has initial control over palestine or israel and so between egypt and between syria the holy land the glorious land what the bible calls canaan becomes a pawn in the political intrigues of these two powers Antiochus Epiphanes is the eighth king in the Seleucid dynasty now I need to tell you a little bit about him when he was a young man he was captured by the Romans and he was held as a prisoner of war while they were working out negotiations and it did something to him. It twisted him and his outlook on life. When he grew up, his brother was the rightful heir to the throne, and he killed him in 175 BC. And so after murdering his brother, who was the rightful heir to the throne, Antiochus was convinced that he could consolidate the Greek empire. He could rebuild what was divided under Alexander, and he thought that salvation was was in Greek culture and the Greek language. And in the Greek system, both of thought and of worship. And so he will bring about his own brand of idolatry. And arguably, he's one of the most sinister and despicable and evil rulers who ever lived. And Daniel will describe in shocking details this person's rule hundreds of years in advance. Antiochus Epiphanes grew in power through the conquering of his neighbors, Through military power. We saw that in verse 9. Now his rule begins small. And then he continues through military conquest. In the south, Antiochus invades Egypt. And he almost overthrows the entire area. All that is left intact is Alexandria. He confronts Parthia, Armenia, and Palestine. He goes back to Egypt, and he's getting ready to consolidate it, but Rome, which is the rising new kid on the block, comes and stops Antiochus in his tracks. As a matter of fact, a Roman general confronts him and and, and basically says, unless you cease and desist, we're going to destroy you. And Antiochus Epiphany said, I need to go back to the council, And discuss this. And the Roman general drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes and he said, you're not allowed to leave that circle under orders of the Roman Senate. This is where we get the expression drawing a line in the sand. This is where it comes from. And Antiochus Epiphanes, even though he was wicked and he was evil, he was also sly and he agreed to leave. But in his fury, in his anger, it grew and it exploded against the Jews. As a matter of fact, he goes back to Jerusalem And he kills 40,000 Jews in less than three days. And in verse 10 it says, And it, speaking of the little horn, grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now some have suggested that the host of heaven here is a reference to the true believers, the people of God. And some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Here the idea is that he is allowed to persecute the people of God and overcome them. And and the expression he's used, trampled them. He grew up to heaven. The idea is he grows up and he gains power and notoriety on on a par with all of of the people of, of, of the time. And Antiochus, again, was certainly a great persecutor of the Jewish people. He begins by slaughtering tens of thousands, and then he works his his way up to, to more and more. And then in 169 BC, you can imagine he's swallowing up this area, but here is a ruler who hates the people that he rules. And because he's launched the attack against Egypt, because he's been turned back by Poplius Lanius as a result of the humiliating defeat, he goes and he begins an unprecedented slaughter. Most of the men are killed immediately. The women and the children are taken as slaves. Gleason Archer writes, and I quote, He sent his great general Apollonius with 20,000 troops under orders to seize Jerusalem on the Sabbath. There he erected an idol to Zeus and desecrated the altar by offering swine on it. And by the way, on the back of his coin is the throne of Zeus. And the statue of Zeus, who is the main god in the Greek pantheon, the idol became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation. And it becomes a type and a picture of a future idol that is erected in a future sanctuary built in the last days. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says these words. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go to the lake or take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight isn't in winter or on the Sabbath. When Jesus said those words, the abomination which makes desolate had already taken place well over a hundred years earlier. So what was he talking about? Was he talking about a future desolation that will take place under the combined armies of Rome under Titus and Vespasian? Yes and no. There is a future army and there is a future destruction. But guess what? Titus and Vespasian don't go into the Holy of Holies and desecrate it. They literally burn it to the ground. So there is a type and a picture that remains unfulfilled if you will and during the siege Antiochus slaughters the Jews he suppresses the worship in the temple and make no mistake about it his behavior isn't simply insanity this is a person who is demonically controlled and demonically possessed I have a friend named Tal, who was a disciple of a man named Sai Baba in India. And Sai Baba had literally millions of followers in India. And my friend Tal Brook went over and became the number one Western disciple. And he and I, we were talking one day, and he relates a story of how he was a devoted follower of this person and that this person was truly demonically possessed and he said imagine if you will a silhouette where you see the reflection of a human being and on that silhouette you see the dark outline of what used to be a person but whatever is left of their humanity it completely disappears that's Antiochus Epiphanes he threatened the citizens with capital punishment if they attempted to observe the Sabbath observe the feast days or circumcise their children. Some of them attempted to escape and when he found out, he followed them to a cave and he built wood and a bonfire around the cave and he burned everyone alive inside. On December 16th, 167 BC, he commanded the Jews, quote, to offer unclean sacrifices to eat swine's flesh on penalty of death. He made the possessions of the documents of the scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures a capital crime. If you were found with the Torah or the Bible, you were killed and it was burned. And every copy that he could confiscate, he completely destroyed. When you reject God, you become God and you aren't willing to accept any other God's. The wicked king plundered the temple. He took the golden implements, including the golden altar of incense, which stood before the inner veil. David Jeremiah writes, and I quote... Instead of the Feast of Tabernacles, Antiochus Epiphanes celebrated in the temple the Feast of Bacchanalia, worshipping Bacchus. And remember, Bacchus is the god of wine, drunkenness, and pleasure. He forced the Jews to observe Saturnalia, worshipping Saturn, using harlots in the temple for the feast days. He forbade the observance of the Sabbath. He forbade the reading of the scriptures. Any Jew practicing any portion of the Jewish religion was killed. He did everything he could to desecrate and destroy their religion forever. History records the atrocities in chilling detail. The book of Maccabees describes two women, mothers, who were deeply committed to the things of God, observant Jews, who in spite of the prohibition, against his orders, had their children circumcised. When Antiochus became aware that they had broken his law, he took the babies, he killed them, he put a string through the baby's neck, hung them around their mothers, marched them through the city streets of Jerusalem, marched them to the wall in Jerusalem, took them to the very top top part of the pinnacle of the temple, and pushed them off. This is the same place, by the way, in the New Testament where Jesus is being tempted by the devil and he takes him to the highest pinnacle of the temple and he says, jump off. Your God will catch you. The historical record also records a mother. She had seven sons who defied the monster Antiochus. She had all of her seven sons observing the Jewish law. And Antiochus cut the tongues out of each boy's mouth from the oldest to the youngest. And one at a time, from the oldest to the youngest, he took a giant piece of iron and heated it up until it was red hot. And he placed the iron against their flesh until each and every one of them were killed. And after he had killed each boy before their horrified mother, He killed her last. He used terror and intimidation. And he sought to strip the will of the people and to make them comply. Because the truth is that evil left unrestricted will continue. And that's a principle, by the way. Evil left unchecked will continue to do more evil. And verse eleven, look what it says. He even exalted himself as, as high as the Prince of the Host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Here's the idea. He even exalted himself as high as the Prince of the Host. Some Bible scholars believe that this means that he took takes the Jewish high priest. And he replaces him with his own high priest. And that's exactly what Antiochus does. And the daily sacrifices that are in the temple cease with the erection of the statue. And then Antiochus goes into the Holy of Holies. He takes a sow. He cuts the pig's throat. He decapitates the pig. Spills the blood on the altar. And then takes the juices of the pig. And he puts the blood on every square inch of the inside of the temple so that no place is left undefiled. Does that make sense to you? It makes perfect sense if you're demonically possessed. Again, his name means illustrious manifestation of the gods. And the prince of the host of the Lord He believes himself to have equal dignity and status and authority. And this is exactly the type and the picture of the future ruler who will one day come and attempt to rule the world. In verse 12 it says, because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And like I said, the implication is he did all this and shockingly and surprisingly, it seemed that he prospered. In other words, the idea is how can something so wicked, how can something so vile, how can something so evil continue? Unchecked, unrestricted. And it was shocking and surprising. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, Daniel, as he's getting this vision, he overhears two angelic beings who are having a conversation with one another. And again, when it says, and he cast truth down to the ground, the idea being that the truth is the sum and the substance of the revelation of God that's found in the Scriptures. And he took the Scriptures and he burned them and he got rid of them. And by the way, when you cease thinking about God in your mind and you become God in your heart then the presence of the revelation of God becomes an indignity that will not be tolerated and note that that has been the manner and the mechanism of antichrists in every generation. It is not good enough that they will persecute the Christian and isolate the the Christian. They will seek to destroy the revelation that's been given to you in the Bible. And here's how it begins. It doesn't begin with taking up a bunch of Bibles and burning them. They'll question the authority of of the Bible. They'll question the clarity of the Bible. They'll question the sufficiency of the Bible. They'll try to make you believe that the Bible doesn't really matter. Matter and that the revelation of God doesn't matter and that the promises of God don't matter. In the 3rd century A.D. at the same circumstances when the church was new and in its infancy and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the documents that you call the New Testament were gathered, there was one final pagan emperor who made a conscientious effort like Antiochus to completely destroy the scriptures. He told his generals at one point, I want you to gather the Christian scriptures and burn them. And the Roman general said, we would love to burn the scriptures. And what are the scriptures? You know, these are pagans and Romans. They, they don't know about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't know about the book of Acts. They don't know about Romans. They don't know about Corinthians. They don't know about Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. They don't know about all of this stuff. How are they to differentiate between what the Christians consider scriptures and sacred writings and Diocletian, in a sinister fashion, simply said, whatever they're willing to die for, burn it. Interesting, isn't it? Especially when your friends tell you that the scriptures were compiled by a group of long bearded men making dogmatic edicts. No, these are the sacred scriptures, the promises that were handed down from generation to generation that tell the glorious story of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says He did all of this. And not only did He get away with it, He prospered. And he hears the angel speaking. And another holy one, it says in verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? Concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot, how long will this indignity last? How long will there be a secession of the sacrifice? How long will the transgression of desolation? And again, that speaks of the historical event where Antiochus goes into the sanctuary, kills the pig and sacrifices it on the altar. And look at the answer in verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What does that mean? Well, scholars are divided over the meaning of the passage. In the original text it says, and he said to me, for 2,300, 300 mornings, evenings, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Well, does this mean 2,324 hours? Or does this mean 1,150 mornings and 1,150 evenings? Because in The temple, the priests would offer a sacrifice in the morning and then they would offer a sacrifice in the evening. The answer? I don't know. Scholars are divided. I think that the scripture here is purposely vague, both positions have a historic application. Those who hold the view that this was 1,150 days, they'll usually begin to date it from December 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes sets up the altar of Zeus in the precinct of the temple and demands that he be worshipped and then ends with Judas Maccabeus rededicating the temple on December 14th, 164, 1,150 days. Pretty compelling. Others, who hold the position of 2,324 hour days, they begin with the removal of the high priest, and then the application of the fake priest Menelaus and that took place in 171 BC and if you march forward for 2,300 days you come up with the rededication in the temple in 164 BC either way guess what the time of persecution the time of tribulation the time of isolation has a beginning it has a middle and it has an end the brutal murder and blasphemy does come to an end by the way in 164 BC in year 11 of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign he became suddenly mysteriously ill not only did he become suddenly and mysteriously ill it happens after years he about the victories of a Jewish patriot and zealot by the name of Judas Maccabeus now at this time there was a priest living in a place called Modai. Which was just outside of Jerusalem, and the priest's name was Matthias. His name in the Hebrew was Ben Matthias Ha Coim. He deeply grieved over the brutal occupation and the atrocities that were committed against the Jews and one day an emissary came from Jerusalem who had captured the city and he came to and he was making the Jews bow before the altar of Zeus and when a Jew stepped forward to worship Zeus, Matthias took him and killed him and then he killed the bureaucrat who was forcing the Jews to worship and then This initiated what was called The Maccabean Revolt In other words, it's on It's on In other words, these guys had had it The atrocities The brutality The wickedness And Matthias was very, very old And he died before the revolt was over and he passed on the torch of leadership to his young son, the third son, Judas Maccabeus, who won the victory over Antiochus and in independence for the Jews. Now, some of you grew up in the same religious tradition that I did, Roman Catholicism. And in the Roman Catholic Bible, there is two sets of books called First and Second Maccabees. And it records these events that I'm telling you about tonight. Several days later, Antiochus died. On December 14th, 163 B.C., Judas Maccabeus rededicates the Jerusalem temple to the Lord God of Israel. He reinstitutes the temple sacrifices, the daily sacrifices. One of the great Bible teachers and and commentators of all time, Gleason Archer, writes, quote, an event celebrated as Hanukkah by the Jewish community takes place ever since, unquote. The restoration of Israel's worship took place 3 years 55 days after Antiochus's administrators abolished the sacrifices. Interesting. By the way, you know the story of Hanukkah, right? After they celebrated and they wash and they cleanse the temple, they only have enough oil for 1 day but mysteriously, miraculously the lights in the temple remain on for eight days and Jews to this very day celebrate this event it usually takes place in the middle of November or the first part of December just depending on which calendar you're using That's the picture of madness. Of blasphemy. Of mortality. By the way, it's interesting how Antiochus dies. His body begins to rot from the inside out. And the stench becomes so unbearable that no one around him can stand it and there comes a point in the disintegration of his body as it becomes literally dying from the inside out that he can't stand the stench himself and he dies not by human hands isn't that interesting as you can imagine this is one of the reasons why the Bible becomes so important. It is the only book in all of human history that writes about events not sometimes thousands sometimes hundreds of years in advance. And there's a reason why. Because God has a plan and a purpose. He had a plan and a purpose in the past. And he has a plan and a purpose in the future. And when we go to the end of this particular chapter, it says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, when we take the rest of the chapter, which we will do later, we're going to look at verses 22 through 27 the next time we meet, and now we're going to be introduced to the future. Antichrist, dramatic in appearance, filled with dark sentences, destined to do evil. You know, it's interesting. I received an email this morning while I was preparing the study. It comes from a listener in my radio program. Dear Gino, I'm writing because I have no idea what to think about where our nation is headed. I trust your opinion, so I thought I'd ask your perspective. What are your thoughts about where we're headed? Do you think that there are signs that we might be headed into the end times? I was listening to your sermons in the book of Revelation, in particular chapter 6, where you described life On the planet earth that leads up to the time of the antichrist One was a global financial crisis Hey, we're there But we've been there before Right? I'd love to hear your thoughts If you have time to share them I know the Bible says that we're to pray for our leaders and respect them And as difficult as that is I have to do that even though I'm upset. Do we need to watch him? Does he have the characteristics of the Antichrist? Or do you think he's just a pawn in the end times game? Let me make it abundantly clear to you. I do not, I do not, I do not believe That our future president is the Antichrist His policies and his positions Are very much different from mine In so many areas But you know what He is our president He will be our president And you know what I purpose in my heart That I will pray for him And I will pray for his cabinet And I will pray for our leaders And I will pray for our future But make no mistake about it I am first and foremost a Christian. But make no mistake about it, I am an American. And I love this country. And when I woke up this morning, I was proud and glad and blessed to be, in what I still believe, to be the greatest country on the planet Earth. And we have our work cut out for us. If ever there was a time to pray, it is now. And if ever there was a time to lead, it is now. Our country is impoverished. Not with money, but with leadership. And you know what the word lead means? It simply means to be the first. It means the person willing to go first. And if ever there was a time for you to lead, it's now. You should be the first to pray. You should be the first to love. You should be the first to evangelize. You should be the first to give. You should be the first to hope. You should be the first to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should be the first who is willing to proclaim that you serve a good God who forgives you in Christ. I'm going to tell you something. I've never been more convinced that we have before us an unprecedented opportunity to live our lives like an open book before a watching world. And if things do go really bad, really quickly, I hope and pray that I'm a leader that when they come to take us, they take me first. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. Just visit me, bring me some iced tea from time to time, and a Christmas pistachio ice cream, and somehow I'll find a way to go on. But i got to tell you something. The world will unfold just as the Bible has predicted. There is a future. But remember, Antiochus Epiphanes, like the coming Antichrist, will share several things. And I'm, I'm going to just give you just a quick synopsis. And then we're going to have communion. And again, I just want to encourage you to, to hold it till we all are able to, to partake together. Antiochus and the Antichrist will come on the scene when, number one, when sin has reached its full measure. Number two, both come on the scene, not simply in their own power or ability, but by the power of Satan. Both will cause shocking devastation. Both will crush armies and believers. Both will use deceit to achieve their goals. Both will exalt themselves. Both will destroy many when they feel at ease and secure. Both oppose the Lord, and then both will be destroyed by the power of the We've had a tiny, tiny glimpse into the past. And the next time we meet, we'll have a tiny, tiny glimpse into the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we live in a world where men and women are desperate to reject God. Lord, we know that if a person is willing to kill one Jew, they're willing to kill all Jews. And if a person is willing to kill one baby, they're willing to kill all babies. Lord, we know that evil by its very nature knows no boundary, recognizes no wall. Doesn't stop for any prohibition. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be salt and that we would be light. Lord, we pray that we would become what we were always intended to be the conscience of a nation that doesn't want to hear from God anymore. Lord, if ever there was a time for us to have courage to speak, Lord, we pray that it would be now. If ever there was a time where we would point people to Jesus and reflect the knowledge that the Bible is true and can be believed, Lord, we pray that it would be now. Lord, if ever we could reflect what it means to live a life of joy, passion, and holiness Lord, if ever there was a time where a watching world would look at us and be able to ask and answer the question, is that what it means to be a Christian? Lord, I pray that it would be now. And Lord, just like Eve was removed from the side of Adam, and the church was is received out of the gaping wound of a crucified Savior Lord we pray that we would become the bride that you've always intended us to be pure and holy and chaste Lord we pray that the stigma of what we say and what we, we do would disappear Because our lives truly reflect The forgiveness and love and hope That's found in Jesus And Lord for the person who's here And they don't know you And they've never experienced The reality of knowing you They've suspected that the Bible was true And they've suspected that it Speaks of history in advance they suspected that the story of his of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is, is true, but they've never entered into a full and final friendship with you. They've lived a life of rebellion and disobedience, of wickedness. Toying with the idea that there may or may not be a God, but they have made themselves God. Toying with the idea that there might be an eternal spirit, but have been trapped in a world of selfish indulgence. Convinced that there might be a heaven. And praying each night that there is no hell. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them that hell is real. And it was created for the devil and his angels. And those who stand in opposition and disobedience to the true and loving God. And that it was never meant for them. Hell was never meant for you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts. I pray that you would speak to their minds. Lord, I pray that you would extend to them the invitation, the offer of forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they would accept that offer. That they would experience wholeness and wellness, peace and forgiveness light and life and love Lord I pray that they would pray even now that if this is true, if the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is true to reveal it to them right now and that they could experience hope and Lord I pray that you would wash them and cleanse them forgive them and reconcile them to yourself in Jesus' name, amen. thing.